Neod, I am Anna Vermoudink, and this is the Neod Rewind podcast on war and violence. In this episode, we delve into a topic central to the Neod, the intricate connection between ego documents and research. We'll unravel the significance of this unique connection between the Neod's extensive collections and research on history of war and violence. And joining me are a diverse group, an archivist and three researchers, as we explore questions about the profound importance of ego documents for historical research. First up, we extend a warm welcome to Carlijn Keizer, Neod's archivist, actively involved in projects at the intersection of archivistics and research. Next, we're joined by Clara Dijkstra, a PhD candidate from the University of Cambridge. Clara's research delves into the experiences of Jewish and Roma families in French internment camps during the Second World War. Currently a fellow at the Neod Institute, uh, so Clara brings a unique perspective to her conversation. And moving on, we have Afke Berger, a PhD candidate at the Neod and an expert in the refuge of Jews in the 1930s and 40s. Afka's insights into the use of ego documents uh, engaging with this topic promise to uh, enrich our discussion on the significance of letters for historical research. And last, but certainly not least, we are thrilled to have Milan van Lange, a researcher at the NEOD, whose interests lie at the intersection of war studies and the digitization of historical archives. So hello to our esteemed guests uh, and a warm welcome to our listeners. So to start with the first question, uh, this is a question to all of you today, all of my guests today. Please tell me a bit about yourself and about your research to, or your work with ego documents. And uh, I would like to start with Carlijn Keizer. Yes, uh, my name is Carlijn uh, Keizer and I'm an archivist. And in this role, I was also involved in uh, Neot's project, First Hand Account of War, that ended last summer and we digitized over 150,000 pages of war letters. We trained a computer uh, model to automatically transcribe the letters and uh, we also uh, developed an enriched and digitally searchable data set. That's what Thank we you. did. Uh, Milan, let's go to you. Yeah, so I'm Milan. Um, I work as a researcher here at the NIOT and I'm interested in the field where the disciplines of historical research and archival work meet, um, mostly in the context of digital research or digitization of archives. I wrote a PhD dissertation uh, at Utrecht University and the NIOT on the role of emotions in dealing with consequences of World War II in the Netherlands. And uh, just as Carline, I was one of the initiators of the project, First Hand Accounts of War, uh, that was just mentioned. Yeah, we will put a link on the website to the project. And uh, then on my left hand side is Clara. Um, hi, I'm Clara. I'm in the third year of my PhD in history at Cambridge in the UK, um, and I've been a fellow at the NIAD for the last few months. I'm researching the experiences of Jewish and Roma prisoners in French internment camps between 1939 and 1946. And um, I use ego documents as my main body of sources for this research, primarily different types of letters, but also some memoirs and testimonies. Thank you. And Afke? Hi, uh, I'm Afke and I'm a PhD candidate here at the NIO. And besides that PhD project, I've been working for uh, some years now on the histories and trajectories of Jews from mainly Germany, uh, Austria and Poland. People tried to flee the countries where they lived in, in the 1930s. 
For this, uh, I make use of tens of thousands of letters uh, sent by these people. And most of these letters have been sent to relief organizations like the Committee for Jewish Refugees here in the Netherlands. Um, and that's the main source I uh, use for this research. Letters. Thank you. So before we dive into the topic further, let's start with a very basic question. What are ego documents actually? And uh, let's start with Carlijn, the archivist. Yeah, it's a fun fact that last week I learned that the word itself is coined by Jacques Presser in the 50s. And in this sense, you could say that uh, Niold always had a close bond with eco documents because Presser uh, was working in that time for uh, Riot, our uh, predecessor. And I wrote it down, uh, Presser defined eco documents as those historical sources in which the researcher is faced with an eye, and later he added, uh, ego documents are those documents in which an ego deliberately or accidentally discloses or hides itself. And I guess the most simple definition now would be um, a text in which an author writes about his or her own acts, thoughts and feelings. So basically that comes down to letters, memoirs, diaries. Yes. And, and why do you think that ego documents are so special as a source for historical research? Now, what I like most about ego documents and uh, personal archives in general is that they often not only document the activities of individuals, but they also uh, record views of people as they go about doing the things that they do and they comment on them, uh, there is a certain kind of, uh, of intimacy in the personal archive that you cannot find in, uh, for example, the more for formalized uh, state uh, and public record keeping system. And as an archivist, I noticed this in uh, the content of the material, but I also uh, notice it in the acquisition, um, uh, for example, the direct contact I have with donors of the uh, documents. So and people who give the documents to the NEO. Exactly, are the donors. Yeah. yeah. Those are the donors and I uh, notice it uh, during the appraisal and uh, subsequent management of ego documents. And um, Another attractive side of eco-documents is probably that as a reader you feel like you're in direct contact, uh, contact with someone of the past. And on the other hand, what past? It's well known that eco-documents can have fictional sites uh, in which the truth is bent unconsciously or consciously. Um, I know diaries uh, that can be very poetic or uh, that are written in a literary way or uh, diaries that are uh, of the war, that are rewritten after the war. Cases of censorship, think of crossed out text or hidden messages. And it's nice because I brought a document and let me see where it is. It's right here. And uh, this is a letter of Hester Alexandria Engers uh, Sarlui, and she writes on July 1942 from uh, Frauenlager in Birkenau. And she writes in Dutch, Tante Terlalu is 
uh, ook hier. And this can be translated like on Terlalu is also here. And Terlalu is a Malaysian word. And it can be translated like very uh, bad. And uh, with this message, she wanted to fool the censorship of the Nazis. And she wanted to let her family know that the circumstances in the camp were horrible. Mm -hmm. So ego documents are so special because they are not just a recording of individual activities. Uh, they also sort of contain these secret messages. Definitely. Uh, Clara, you do research to the experiences of Jews and Roma prisoners in French internment camps during the Second World War. Why are ego documents from your perspectives so special? Yeah, so um, ego documents are special to me because, like you said, my research tries to uncover individual experiences and perceptions of imprisonment in French internment camps. And um, letters especially are a key tool to be able to do this. I use letters sent by Jewish prisoners from within the camps, and I think that they allow a window into the emotional lives of individuals, something that official, administrative, or public state archives lack. Prisoners um, wrote to friends and family on the outside of the camps, asking for news of loved ones and food parcels, but they also described what life was like inside these camps, so how people felt about their own identity and how they found a sense of community in these camps. Ego documents are also especially important for studying the persecution of Roma in France, in occupied France. Up until very recently, their history has mostly been told through a much more administrative perspective that relies on documents produced by the French state. This kind of research focuses on control and surveillance and doesn't include the experiences of persecution and imprisonment of Roma people told in their own voices. Um, this tends to perpetuate assumptions and prejudices regarding Roma people. My research, however, faces a challenge that is true for a lot of research on the persecution of Roma during the Holocaust, that there are far fewer ego documents available to study Roma than to study Jews. For example, there are no comparable private family letter collections from Roma in French internment camps. So I use petition letters sent by Roma requesting their release from the camps. Um, these letters are much less detailed and they follow a more formal structure than family letters, but I, I argue that these can still be seen as ego documents as they contain a lot of information about family relations and also how Roma saw themselves in French society. So while petition letters probably follow a more formal structure, they still offer valuable information about family relations, senses of identity, uh, and how Roma community members viewed themselves within, especially French internment, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so these ego documents give us a view on how people made sense of periods of violence. Milan, from your perspective, as a researcher focusing on digitization, could you elaborate on this? Yeah, so one of the things that occurred to me during the digitization project that I ran with Carline the last few years, one of the things that uh, became very visible to us because we were working with such a large uh, amount of ego documents and uh, with a very large amount of variation as well, is that ego documents also tell us something about the social, the political or the societal context of their creators, of the people who were writing uh, letters, for example. During this project, we came to realize that most of these letters and diaries are a construct and not a mere reflection of what happened or, or what people experienced. But on the other hand, they're also not only the product of individual agency, of 
how people uh, conceive the world around them, but they're also relational to the specific time and place-bound context of the historical letter writer or the diary writer. And I think that what Clara just said also relates to that. These petition letters, of course, they look different from letters written to somebody's parents, for example, or in, a, in another um, interpersonal context. And one of the things that was very striking in the digitization project was that these contexts, these circumstances also impacted, for example, the materials used to write letters on. In times of paper scarcity, for example, you, you could immediately recognize these letters uh, by the way they looked. But I think that what is also an interesting factor in this is, for example, the circumstances in which uh, a letter in this is written, such as the relationship between the writer and the recipient. This all impacts the tone of voice, the contents, the writing style, but also uh, influences the image or the, the insights that we gain in a writer's personality or circumstances, uh, or the way that this person makes sense of the world around, um, around them. I have, for example, one letter writer that, that comes to mind who wrote in a very formal tone of voice to government, official government bodies in the period after uh, World War II to apply for financial compensation for wartime suffering. But from the same person we have in the collection, a letter written from a camp back home to his family, where he writes something like, Now, my darlings, I hope that you will receive this message in good health and be tightly embraced and receive thousands of kisses and hoping for a reunion anytime soon. And you can imagine that this really differs from the official letter that he, he wrote to, uh, to a government body. And then we also have personal collections of individuals who write to different people, for example, and cons conscripted Dutch soldier who writes to his parents, but also to his friends. And to one of his friends, he writes about a girl that he met who was, in his words, a killer chick with quite a bit, <laughs> money, quite a bit of money to spend. Mm. Uh, but it's not difficult to imagine how this story was differently constructed in the letters to his mother. So, so that's something that really uh, became apparent during this project, with yeah. working with such a large amount of documents. I can imagine. All this variation. Yeah, this beautifully demonstrates how that eco-documents offer a window uh, into the social and political environment of their creators uh, and of the different identities as well that people can have during periods of violence. So Mila, you work on the digitization of historical archives. Why do you emphasize the importance of digitizing historical ego documents? Um, for me, this also relates to what, what we just uh, discussed about the societal context um, that, that is also part of these letters and that can also be derived, that, that we can gain insights into by studying these letters. I think that makes the case for digitization because it's a layer of meaning that emphasizes the importance of having ego documents available in a way that they can be analyzed at scale and also gain insights beyond the insight in the history of an individual actor or for, for um, insights into the lives of a relatively small group of people. Because you can imagine that, that, that personal correspondence is quite suitable to investigate a particular person, a family or a relatively small network of friends. Historians can, can carefully read such a collection, but this becomes more difficult if you are, for example, a social historian interested in how yeah, the ordinary people or people in a, in a certain uh, country or, um, a group of people or area, a larger group of people made sense of historical uh, circumstances. And I think the digitizations or digitization of letters offers opportunities to aggregate these perspectives of many letter writers 
and to gain insight in, for example, ideas or ideologies at scale and compare different groups or different types of uh, letter writers in different contexts. Yeah, so digitization of ego documents allows researchers to analyze personal records on a larger scale, which enables the examination of collective perceptions of war and violence. Yeah, and I think that this is an opportunity for historians that is very important because it's very difficult for us to question large quantity of historical actors retrospectively. Mostly people are, uh, have already died, uh, are, are not available anymore, or they are influenced by decades of cultural memories or, or uh, conventions about how to think or talk about this past. And I think that the large collection of ego documents that we have at NEOD, for example, in a digitized form, uh, offer yeah, these opportunities to, to do this at scale. Thanks. And Afke, you also work with large data sets. Uh, what's your perspective on this? Why are ego documents so important for your research? I would say I am very much with Milan uh, in this. At first sight, uh, for me, the letters, they, they gave entrance to people who were not traceable in official archives. So it's people who were kind of ungrievable because their names, when you could not find them anywhere else anymore. And all of a sudden you had a, a voice of these people uh, and they were ungrievable, I have to say that, because most of the people I study uh, perished during the Holocaust. For me, it showed how many people try to escape. Like the narrative very often has been that uh, the Jews in the 1930s tend to stay where they lived because they loved their home country that much, or they uh, thought that it could, would not become that worse. But these letters show, because it's a significant amount of letters, show that lots of people tried to escape but simply couldn't. So it also changes the big narrative. So that's the first layer. But Actually, um, what I'm doing now, and this is actually what, what, what Milan also says, there's so much unintended information in, in ego documents and also in my letters, uh, and I make way more use of this unintended information. So could you elaborate a bit on that? What uh, do you mean by unintended yeah, information? It's a bit, I, I use this word myself, so I don't, have no, I don't know if this is the official way to say it, but... Um, you can now claim it. I can claim it, yeah, yeah so <laughs> the unintended information. These letters that I make use of, they are created uh, by people who try to escape and they send letters. They write uh, it down in a way that I think that will give them the most chance to get admitted, uh, in my case, in the Netherlands. That's what they try to do, that's their intention. But uh, these letters show way more, so they show the social context, they show... But actually, there's, there's researchers who have already, already written a lot about this. Uh, there's one person I would like to mention, uh, she's Penny von Thorn, who did research into the writing of Aboriginal societies, and she writes, writing never arrives naked, saying that a letter is a complex interplay between different social protocols, practices, and every letter contains so much more than uh, only the obvious information that is in it. And for me, for instance, looking at this other unintended information, it showed me how, for instance, rumors work. I have uh, letters sent from a small village in Austria, sent by older people who ask for permission uh, to get a place in an elderly house for Jewish refugees. Nowhere in the Dutch newspapers or official papers you can find any writing about an elderly house for Jewish refugees, but apparently 
rumors there have spread that such a thing was uh, going to be erected here. And other thing is, it shows that from what places and what kind of people did write a letter to the Netherlands. Like, so there were people who knew that they had to send a letter to it. Uh, the Jewish county for refugees here to get admitted. Uh, but how did they know and uh, who were these people? Um, and um, Mila mentioned the tone, like the tone of the, the letters. In my case, it's also, um, you could see the ways that people wrote to the, the powerful in this case. Like some letters were very demanding, saying, yeah, of course, you'll be very happy with my letter because I'm I also wrote a letter to the Queen and she agreed with uh, me being admitted to the Netherlands. Some of the letters were very submissive, other letters used names of important people um, and it depends very much on the social position of people but also on the writing culture. For instance, I have this letter from Slovakia which is a very God-loving, praising letter, like uh, saying, uh, 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 you greatest, greatest man, God will uh, God and his sons will praise you with everything if you give me a place here in the Netherlands. But that's a very normal way to write there, not in Germany. You would not find such a letter from Germany, but from Slovakia you would. I think you just beautifully showed how uh, people sort of negotiated their safety in periods of, of violence and at the same time how these letters say something about group identity and uh, group culture. As we discuss the examples, it's, uh, it's clear how deeply personal these documents are. We all heard these examples from all of you. So they are actually essentially somebody's private thoughts. Yet they are accessible to researchers in the archives. Uh, Carline, could you share your insights on the, uh, on the ethical considerations surrounding the sharing and accessibility of such intimate and private reflections? Yes, of course I can. Uh, often I hear the statement that archives are public goods and this seems a fairly uncontroversial statement. But I think especially with ego documents like uh, letters and diaries, there are more uh, moral limitation to what we call public goods. And other than public archives, ego documents are often acquired from individuals and they are not made by a corporate or governmental entity. And uh, they are about uh, those individuals and not just uh, a public activity. And as an archivist, it is my task to balance the interest of, for example, uh, the privacy rights of a donor, so the people who give their material to, an, to NEOD or another archival organizations, and second uh, parties, and take, for example, a letter writer. Uh, letters are often kept in the archive of the recipients, which means that as a, a letter writer you don't have a lot of agency in the disposition of your uh, material. And there are also third parties, and this can be the people who are mentioned in an ego document or a letter. And on the other hand, I have to think of you guys, uh, the researchers, and uh, I have to respect and promote access.
Although we are trained in this and trained in acknowledging the risks of providing access, whether this is online or on-premise in uh, the reading room, it is, in my opinion, much easier to de determine what is legally protected information than to determine what can be uh, sensitive or embarrassing information for an author, a second or a third party. The latter is much more uh, a personal judgment. This further complicates the whole process of identifying the risks. And to give some examples, there are many private documents like letters or uh, diaries where the text is crossed out. I already talked about that. And often it's unclear whether this is done by the author themselves or the families that inherited the diaries or the letters. Also, Anne Frank, many people don't know this, but Anne Frank has written two versions of her diary. And one was meant for the public and the other was strictly for herself. And there are also two pages in her diary that are covered with some brownish paper. Whether we don't know if Anne Frank has done this herself, uh, we do now know that the pages contained like a kind of dirty jokes. It is covered by purpose, so someone thought this wasn't meant for the wider the world to know. And are these specific texts, are they now visible for, re for people who want to read them or are they...? Yeah, I think they are even on the website of... Uh, uh, the Anne Frank Stichting. Um, Those private sections yeah. are even yeah. published in that sense. Yeah. So yeah, there's a tension between preserving privacy for the authors of ego documents and gaining historical understanding of an uh, event or period. And uh, Milan, do you have experience with this tension when it comes to the digitization of large amounts of ego documents? I think one of the things that struck me during our digitization project was that these uh, that people give intimate and, and very private reflections, often in context of what we know as the well-known or big events in history like World War II, very harsh conditions. But something that really struck me is that sometimes these letters that were written in very harsh conditions in times of paper scarcity, so people were, had, had this one opportunity on a scrap of paper to write to family, uh, Jewish families in hiding, for example, writing to, to other family members, and then you see that in this, this, these letters, sometimes very seemingly insignificant themes are discussed or topics are shared. Letters uh, mentioning uh, knitting socks or baking pancakes and even sharing the recipe, the very simple recipe for these pancakes with family members. But it was only later that I came to realize that for the writers, for the initial creators of this, this, this correspondence, this was very important. For example, for children in hiding, Jewish children in hiding that I, that I read some letters from, these were very important life events, as these were basically defining the scope of the agency, of the space that they had to move, the, the, the possibilities that they had. Um, they, were, they were able to achieve these activities given the very restricting circumstances of hiding under Nazi occupation. And I think what, what these kinds of things also show is, is the exceptionality of of normal things in times of war and persecution. So uh, ego documents can show us what was meaningful for a person at that specific time under those specific circumstances. 
And this subjective character of ego documents, of course, makes it hard for archivists to draw a strong line between what is too private to disclose, perhaps, or what is not. We've been talking about the fact that ego documents not only convey the explicit information written by the author, but also provide other insights, such as the broader social-political context in which the author lived. And uh, let's talk a bit more about this sort of second layer, or how Afke mentioned it, unintended layer, unintended information in ego documents. And I want to focus specifically on the materiality of the ego documents. So what does the materiality say about the source and its context? And Carlijn, I believe you brought a very special item from the NEOT archive. Tell us, what do you have here? Yeah, I brought a diary on uh, toilet paper. I have it over here. Uh, I'll show you, Afka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, just to show that eco documents come in all shapes and sizes. Um, the diary is written by uh, Florian's Adriane Kalf Elias. And she lived in the Dutch city of Nijmegen. Um, and she, on the toilet paper, you can see the paper is very vulnerable and the ink has faded. Uh, she writes about bombing raids and how parachutes descend from the sky and how the fire starts. But I also brought this. And this I personally like a lot. This is uh, a record. You have a little envelope there. It's yeah, a square it, envelope with a yeah. vinyl record or it's not. Yeah, it, it, it isn't vinyl. I don't know what it is. It is a record. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is a record. Some kind of yeah. Uh, yeah. yellow. It's yellow, yeah. It's lacquered. Yeah, and it's shiny. Luck, yeah, liquor. Uh, I don't know how to print it. Oh. So there's a letter on that. Yeah, it's a spoken letter on a record. And these spoken records became popular after the war, especially among soldiers who were sent to the Dutch East Indies and also among their families. And the record I brought, I digitized it myself. It is a reply of the family of Kees van der Steen, and he was stationed uh, with the Engineer Field Company uh, from uh, November 1947 to 1950 at various places in Java. And we can also listen to it. Yes, let's see if I can... Afke's face could also tell us that it, that it smells really bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's also materiality. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it does smell good. <laughs> okay, I will uh, play the record. Beste Kees, we zijn hier bij elkaar, vader, moeder, Ria, Jan en Harry, om een woordje met je te praten. One disclaimer: the quality is quite bad. Dan citeer ik je met je verjaardag, ook namens anderen die niet hier tegenwoordig zijn. En dan moet ik je nog bedanken. What we just heard is a, is a Christmas and birthday greetings on a record uh, from relatives in the Netherlands to Kees, who is at that moment, he, he was a soldier in the Dutch-Indonesian War in December 1947. Clara, you also dedicate attention to the materiality in your research, right? Tell us about this. Yeah, um, so taking time to think about the materiality of these letters sent from French internment camps is definitely a really important part of my research. 
Um, I look at the type of paper a letter was written on, for example, and this kind of links back to what Milan was talking about, about the resources people had available to them to write these letters. Um, so you get a lot of useful information out of the type of paper. For example, if a letter was written on the regulation postcard format, which was a much more uh, thick paper, then it was more likely to be sent through the official camp postal system. But if a letter was written on fragile, thin, or flimsy paper, it was more likely to be sent through black market channels. Um, I also look at what the handwriting can tell us about the mindset of the individuals writing these letters. For example, letters that were written in pencil and where the handwriting looks um, very messy and scrawled would indicate that they were written in a rush and often right before a prisoner was to be deported from these camps. Um, in contrast to a letter written with an ink pen and in quite small, tidy handwriting. Um, so I believe all these elements of detail can be lost if we only work with ego documents that are fully digitized or transcribed because you lose the ability to hold these documents, to touch the paper, to kind of see what they look like as objects, not just as flat images. Yeah, thanks. We just elaborated on the fact that ego documents are quite special as they contain a second layer of information beyond the explicit content. However, it's equally important to approach them from a critical perspective. Uh, Carline, in your opinion, what are some common pitfalls or challenges historians should be mindful of when working with ego documents? Mm, I think the most important thing when you work with ego documents is, is that you have to uh, realize that the writers and also the donors are not neutral. And, uh, what did you say about the uh, naked writing? Afke. Uh, yes, uh, the writing never arrives naked. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that statement uh, because the writers and also the donors, they decide what to write down, what to leave out. Um, and for example, as a donor, you can decide if you want to donate your letters or your personal archive. Uh, to NEOD, uh, and if yes, what? Um, this whole uh, process of selection uh, is uh, impacted by uh, societal beliefs about what is important, uninteresting or shameful, uh, what should be thrown away. And same applies for the historical actors working with them. For example, me as an archivist, I did some research in NEOT's institutional uh, archive and I even discovered that in the past some uh, donations were sent back home because the researchers thought that, for example, a diary, uh, that a diary wasn't interesting enough for historical research. Yeah, for me, the most important thing is that we should realize that when we look at all the eco-documents uh, in NEOT's collection, that these are the outcomes of uh, decades of changes in, um, for example, archival practices and ideas about what is considered important enough and worthy of documenting. Yeah, so what we as researchers or visitors of the, of the archive can read in the documents and which ego documents we can find in the archives is actually part of a long process of selection so not only ego documents are not neutral sources of information, but also the archives themselves. Yeah, it's a product of many decisions. So by the, letter, the writers, uh, by uh, donors, uh, and by uh, employees of archival institutions. 
Uh, what about you, Afka? What are some common challenges or obstacles that historians should be mindful of when working with ego documents? Yeah, actually, the things I'm going to say, I think maybe it goes for any source uh, a historian or a researcher uh, uses. I think it's, it's important to be aware of the silence, as you find uh, everywhere. If it's uh, specifically about ego documents, there's silences in creating them. Like the sources we talked about were most of them um, uh, texts. So that already asks for someone who is able to write. So who writes? In what language? And then there's the process of keeping. Uh, if we talk about violence, lots of people die. The ego, ego documents they created, where do they go to? Like the ego documents we uh, have in archives, there's still a kind of survivor bias uh, in that because in a sense you need to be a family member or a friend or an acquaintance or of a survivor to yeah, have your ego document stored somewhere. And then there's the archiving itself and the, um, um, yeah, what is seen as uh, worth uh, keeping in an archive. And if you put it in a broader context, it's actually about rethinking power structures of, of knowledge and of archive. And actually, it's not a problem, I think, the silences. It's actually, I think, as historians, we should uh, problematize uh, the silences, because what do they tell? Yeah. And Milan, you probably also have a vision about this. How does this relate, what Afka and Carlijn told us, to digitizing and making available historical documents online? So yeah, when we're talking about digitization or digitizing, maybe it's good to, to highlight that, that we're talking about scanning materials, transcribing materials, and making them, for example, full text searchable uh, for researchers or people interested in that. And making them online available is, of course, another step, a next step in this. And I think that, and that really relates to what Afka just said, uh, there is something that you can call the politics of digitization. So also in making choices and decisions about what is being digitized, what is being made available, that is also, in a sense, uh, the result of a large process of decisions and choices that is, that is not neutral. There are also some, some biases or explicit ideas uh, ingrained in that. But I think in a more general sense, digitization can also be a bit of a false friend. One of the things that I've observed in, in people working with ego documents is that they're often used as to provide anecdotal evidence for a wider historical trend or a bigger uh, historical or so uh, social development. And I do not want to state that that procedure is inherently wrong, but I think we can all agree on the fact that this can be a slippery slope. There are some risks involved in doing this. And now, especially given the relative abundance of ego documents that we have for, for the 20th century, for example, whether they are digitized or not, there is a risk that ego documents are picked or used as evidence to confirm only a very particular perspective on history and in that respect also reproduces power balances that, that, that are undesirable, for example. And especially when ego documents are, are digitized, it's not very hard to find a fitting case to make your point. I mean, when you can full text search through letters, you will always find something that confirms what you were already thinking. And I think it's good to be conscious of that. And I think that that relates to what Afka just said. Uh, we should address this uh, explicitly. And I think it's, it's good to know that ignoring a significant number of related cases that can give alternative or even contradiction, uh, contradicting understandings of the past uh, can be relatively easy, so should be addressed uh, more explicitly. And I think that digitization is in this sense bo both our friend and, uh, and our foe, because with easily searchable data sets of documents, there is a risk of uh, 
yeah, of finding only those cases that confirm what you already wanted to say. But on the other hand, there is the positive note that the scale and findability can also offer access to alternative windows on the past and include them in more systematic or comparative analysis as well. So as researchers, we should not pick the stories that agree with what we already think. <laughs> and digitization can help us not to ignore those other stories that might give a different picture of what happened. Potentially, yes. But I think there are also risks involved. So it's a bit... Um, uh, I'm a bit, how you say that, two-sided on this? Yeah. So despite these pitfalls, there's an increase in the use of ego documents as sources in historical research, right, Clara? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think this is especially true for research on the Holocaust and the Second World War. Um, more and more researchers in these fields are using ego documents, and this is part of a general trend towards what is called an integrated history of the Holocaust. And this is the idea that the study of the Holocaust should include the experiences of persecuted individuals, as well as an examination of the more um, higher level political ideology of Nazi perpetrators. Um, with this trend, there have been a lot more localized studies and a focus on how individuals interact with broader systems of persecution and oppression. And as we've talked about, ego documents are key sources to be able to reconstruct this and look at the history of quote unquote ordinary people during the Holocaust. Um, in the last few years, there's especially been an increase in research that uses letters as sources to study the Holocaust. Um, for example, last year, the Wiener Holocaust Library in London put on an exhibit called Holocaust Letters, focused on how letters written during this period help us to see how Jewish persecutees understood and made sense of what was happening to them. Last May, I also co-organized a workshop at the Wiener Library on letter writing and Holocaust studies, um, which drew a really wide range of early career researchers and more senior scholars, including Afka, Karlein, and Milan. And now I'm currently co-editing a volume based off this project, which will hopefully be the first book in English that methodologically examines the use of letters in research on the Holocaust. Um, and it will include case study approaches and more general reflections on the role of the researcher in private family collections. And I think that really links to what we were talking about. And I think yeah, I think this means that young researchers are really seeing the value in ego documents for writing a slightly different kind of history of the Holocaust, but obviously have to be aware of all these challenges and potential pitfalls in using ego documents as sources. Yeah. For our listeners who might be interested in exploring all these materials that we have here at the NEALD, all these ego documents, Carlijn, could you provide a glimpse of the incredible range of, of uh, documents that people might discover when visiting the NEOT archives. If you want to see some eco-documents, you can find them everywhere in, the, in our collection, but most of them are present in the letter collections and the diary collections. Uh, I already showed uh, spoken letters uh, on records. I have shown uh, a diary on toilet paper, but we also have uh, letters written on a piece of cloth. We have a diary on mon monopoly paper. And uh, my personal favorite is a diary in a jerry can that survived the atomic bombing in Nagasaki. I think sometimes it's an absolute miracle that all these documents survived and found their way to NEOT collection after all. The journey of those materials would <laughs> yeah. be an interesting topic of a, of a podcast, perhaps. Next time. <laughs> Um, as we wrap up this episode, Carlijn has provided us with a, a yeah, truly fascinating glimpse into the diverse uh, materials that can be found in the NEOD archives. 
from letters with spoken recordings to unique items like diaries on a Monopoly paper. Eco documents provide invaluable insights into the lived experiences of individuals during war and violence. I want to thank my guests, Carlijn Keizer, Clara Dijkstra, Afke Berger and Milan van Lange for illuminating us on the world of ego documents and the intersection of archivistics and research.